0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: So glad you're here. Pull up your stool. It is the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives. And Jim, let's start with the good. It's the lead item in your morning jolt today, and that's that hospitals look to be in good shape, at least for the moment, in preparing for any influx of patients coming in due to coronavirus. You do talk about in the piece as well that a couple of weeks ago, it was a very different story, maybe even more recent than that in some places, like New York and New Jersey and Detroit. But right now, uh, the cases in the hospital seem to be waning a little bit. So New York's in better shape, New Jersey, uh, New Orleans, which had been a kind of a hot spot in in better shape, Detroit, uh, which had really been... in in tough straights. You mentioned piling up bodies in adjacent rooms because the morgue was closed for the night. That wasn't good, but they're in a better shape now. And in uh, places like Miami, which are starting to see things on the uptick, are still uh, relatively well situated. So we don't know what the wave's going to end up looking like here, whether there could be a resurgence in some areas. But right now, the hardest hit areas seem to be doing better, and the areas that haven't been hard hit uh, still have pretty good capacity.
0: Yeah. You know, it turns out that if you get, for all, you know, we are not a perfect country. We have our flaws. We, you know, really did have uh, genuine concerns that our hospitals were going to get overwhelmed. And based on what we know now, and there'll be caveats and asterisks to come, and particularly in our next martini, um, we have, we've gotten through, it looks like the worst, or at least the worst in most places. And we have sufficient hospital capacity. Now, that was not necessarily the case, and the horror stories coming out of New York City were really, really bad. Uh, Northern New Jersey, similarly, was probably the second most hit place. You could kind of argue they represent one uh, main area of commuters and, and people living together. As you mentioned, Detroit was bad, and they, for a while, they were sending other hosp- other patients to other hospitals. Um, uh, probably right now, the place that is concerning me the most uh, and that is, is Prince George's County, a uh, mostly African-American suburb, a Maryland suburb of Washington, D.C. Uh, they are saying that some of their hospitals are full and they are sending hospital- patients to other hospitals. But other than that, it's been pretty good. Now, I note that this is kind of basically, doing. if people want to say, you know, this is anecdote by anecdote, this is um, going through, you know, start- I started out by looking at the New York Times map of the number of cases, looked at each place that had been in the news and which one has the most cases. That's why places like, you know, uh, Miami were on the list. Um, You know, unsurprisingly, in the bigger cities, that's where you're going to have the most cases. Uh, The good news is in those big cities, that's where you generally have bigger hospitals, more doctors, more beds, more ICU beds and things like that. And by and large, so far, everybody's under capacity and they've got room for a little bit more Um, this is not to say they're on easy street. And a lot of them were like, we're, we're hanging in there. We, we have enough room, not that they are, um, have a ton of extra space. And so by no means are we out of the woods yet. I also note that like, uh, some States are being very open down to the last number of how many beds are available. Some are just kind of giving general ballpark estimates in, in, you know, verbal statements from officials. Uh, I'd like to see this as open as possible. I know some states don't want to reveal this. I guess they feel like there's a, um, the secrecy or, or the lack of specifics comes from a fear of, uh, setting off a panic. If people find out that the local hospital is run out of beds and, and, you know, but the thing is, that means that if, you know, if one hospital is full, people will know, well, if you have an issue, maybe you want to go to the hospital, the next County over or something like that. So I, I'm not sure. I, I prefer this information be as widely open as possible. The other thing I kind of wonder though is because you have so many hospitals that have canceled all other procedures other than emergency procedures, that of course they're going to have a lot more beds open. And of course they're going to have a lot more, you know, and people might look at this and say, oh, this isn't that bad. I guess I can go, you know, time to host that house party and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think that is uh, necessarily the way people will react, but you never know. So I suppose that might justify some of the vagueness about these statistics. But by and large, it looks like most places have room in their hospitals. Uh, some places say that because of the lack of other, you know, uh, uh, car accidents and the other things that put people in the hospital, uh, that their rates are, are much lower. And look, that's good. I think that is one of the things we definitely need to see before we start reopening the, uh, the, the economy and, and get letting people get back to work in greater numbers. But maybe that's a good segue, Greg. That's a much more complicated uh, calculation than, uh, than, it. you know, there, there is no easy choices to give people a sense of what we're about to talk about. This is difficult in many
1: different layers. President Trump, of course, openly wrestling with uh, when to lift the restrictions and the recommendations, the, the guidelines on, on mitigation and so forth. Uh, from what I'm reading today, Dr. Fauci apparently thinks May 1st is going to be a little premature for that. In fact, he believes that uh, if we're going to have professional sports at all this summer, even into the fall, there probably won't be an audience for it in these stadiums, which will uh, make them feel a whole lot different. But, uh, Jim, I watched the uh, 2007 Champs Sports Bowl the other night, so anything live would be uh, a definite improvement on that front. And, uh, but there's, there's tension about what to do here. We had Trump's absolute authority comment, Cuomo saying, we don't have a king. Uh, you've got DeSantis and Abbott saying that uh, they want to reopen as quickly as possible. You've got some Republicans in Congress, according to Politico, saying they wish that this had happened yesterday. But it's not that simple because even if you say, okay, re-engage, you need the American people to buy in. And that's not going to happen anytime soon based on new polling from Politico and Morning Consult, which says that more than eight in 10 voters, 81% say Americans, quote, should continue to social distance for as long as is needed to curb the spread of coronavirus, even if it means continued damage to the economy. Only 10% say Americans should stop social distancing to stimulate the economy, even if it means increasing the spread of coronavirus, 9% of voters have no opinion, 89% of Democrats, 72% of Republicans say continue the social distancing regardless of the repercussions. So Jim, when that many people are ready to keep writing this out indefinitely, opening stuff up might not have that big of an impact.
0: Yeah. So one of the ways, one of the reasons you and I are talking about this today, and I had a corner post about this yesterday, is that, you know, at some point in the future, maybe at the end of the month, maybe a little bit past that, maybe, you know, Mid May, maybe at the end of May, maybe maybe into June, uh, you will see various states and localities starting to take steps to open up the economy more. And you're probably going to hear somebody saying, "This is too early. This is risking people's lives. This is the wrong choice. The president is wrong. The governor is wrong. The mayor is wrong." You know all this kind of stuff. And and here's the problem: I don't. You know, we we probably don't have a good time. You know, there is probably not a good time in the midst of a pandemic that it's going to be going around for at least until we can distribute a vaccine and nobody thinks that's going to happen for another 12 months to to 18 months. Um, There's no good time. There's only a question of what is the least bad time. Uh, Now, of course, I was walking around a uh, kind of mixed use shopping residential area yesterday Uh, keeping my distance from everyone in case anyone's, you know, wants to rat me out to Ralph Northam or something like that. But, uh, (laughs) a lot of, a lot of restaurants in this, uh, neighborhood and I did it about two weeks ago and two weeks ago, all a whole bunch of my favorites were like, well, we're, we're still open. We were available for takeout and delivery, use DoorDash, use all these different, you know, delivery services. We'll be happy to, uh, Uber eats, you know, we'll be happy to, to, you know, keep making food. And these are restaurants that were, you know, I'm sure either they didn't offer delivery and takeout before or delivering takeout was a very small portion of their business before. But they're going to try to keep themselves going. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, one of my favorite places, I'm picking up an order on a Saturday night. Uh, another patron comes along and is picking something up. And they said, hey, is my favorite, uh, you know, so-and-so here is still working. And the manager has this look on his face. And he says, yeah, yeah, we got her some hours this week and you could just see it in his eyes his recognition that clearly this worker was working part you know part time and probably only a few shifts if you know if that much in a week and it was you know much less than she probably needed to to pay the rent and and keep her expenses going But this is this was the best that he could do under these circumstances to keep money flowing into the restaurant and to his employees. Um, Last I checked yesterday, they're still doing delivery and takeout, but a bunch of restaurants have stopped doing delivery and takeout. They now have signs in the windows saying we are temporarily closed. We hope to reopen soon. Sadly, I think it's likely that a bunch of these businesses are not going to reopen soon. Uh, the St. Louis Federal Reserve uh, chairman said that uh, he thinks, he estimates that they were losing about $25 billion in lost productivity every single day. We got to reopen this economy. <laughs> and, it, and probably sooner rather than later, the other thing that's coming up in conversations with people is the sense that, um, again, most people want to do good, most people want to help, most people are willing to make a sacrifice in order to save lives. But everybody's been stuck in their house for about a month now. <laughs> it's starting to wear on people, and I think they're willing to make these good uh, these good faith efforts. I, we, you and I have talked in recent days about these uh, silly police actions that kind of look like you know petty petty dictators or petty tyrants, and they get you know people start chafing at this sort of thing. Um, I think all of this is made a little bit tougher by the fact that we don't have. An end date. I think once that end date is announced, maybe people are like, all right, just got to hold on a little. Like, there's a reason that Lent is 40 days, and they let you know that Easter is at the end of it, right? There's a reason <laughs> that most diets aren't like you're going to be on this for the rest of your life. Like, they, people need that hope and that optimism. And the other factor to keep in mind here is the first couple of weeks of this crisis. There's been this sense in a great deal of the coverage that the United States dropped the ball. I think we can debate that. I think we can definitely agree that we did not handle it as perfectly as it could have. Um, And that a lot of Asian countries had done better, looking at Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong. um, And the problem is that all of these countries that have had much more uh, strict rules, uh, they have much more widespread use of masks, much more widespread testing, stricter home quarantines, tracking you on your cell phone and various steps that lots of Americans would not be comfortable with. They're actually starting to see an uptick in the last couple of days. And they haven't. In some cases, they lessened some of their uh, uh, restrictions. In other cases, they didn't. Uh, I think the lesson from this is that even the countries that seemed like they were doing this best, aren't? Are still having their own challenges. Uh, and even you know, we, you and I have talked about the the implausibility of the gov- numbers coming from the Chinese government even their numbers are going up. Now, if somebody who's lying to you <laughs> feels the need to make the lie a little more plausible, that's probably a sign that they've got some real problems there. So nobody's got a really good answer. And I think one of the, the you know, hard, you know, difficult lessons that could come from this is that this is all, if not quite a one-to-one scenario, that there is no perfect balance that gets us the maximum economic you know, recovery and the minimum number of uh, uh, new cases. It may be one-to-one. When you see things like the Smithfield pork plant having to shut down because of workers getting it, uh, workers getting it in Amazon warehouses, workers getting it amongst supermarkets and grocery stores. Look, if people go to work, they're going to interact with each other, even if they're wearing masks, even if they're wearing gloves, even if they're taking all the precautions, people are going to get this. And so now the question is, all right, how many more people are going to get this? This takes us back to our first martini of, okay, we've got capacity in our hospitals now at a lot of Americans at the absolute minimal economic activity. Once people start going back to work, even if you do it on, you know, let's say, staggered shifts or, or various other steps, chances are that's going to start going up again. And I don't know, um, at some point, do you and your, Do you find yourself in the, the same mess that you're trying to avoid of the hospitals getting overwhelmed and, and all that stuff? I think it's very likely we're going to be dealing with recurring um if not quarantines and recurring social distancing, you know, it's not. Go- First of all, it's not going to be a you know flicking of light switch. We go back to the regular economy, and it's probably going to come and go in waves for for a good long while. And that's deeply frustrating. But those are the facts, people. Interesting
1: to watch. On the one hand, you've got the people jonesing to uh, reinvigorate the economy now, and uh, of course, for the people who have lost jobs or are on the brink of losing their jobs, they want to see this come back as quickly as possible. I'm interested and, and curious that the. The numbers aren't a little bit stronger in that uh, department, given how many millions of people uh, have just been laid off and so forth. But uh, on the one hand, you've got the people wanting to reopen now. On the other hand, you've got people, I think it's the CDC saying we could be wearing masks till 2022. And uh, Ezekiel Emanuel saying uh, we're going to be doing this till late 2021, because that's 18 months from now. That's how long it might take to develop the vaccine. So we've got this giant swath in the middle. And that's where I think the argument's going to end up being here soon.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that, you know, I was chatting with uh, one of the other uh, my other podcast partners, Mickey White, earlier today. I, Greg, I don't think I've called you Mickey recently. No. I do know I have called Rich Greg on at least two of the last three episodes of The Editors. So <laughs> I think this is even worse when I'm not seeing the person I'm talking to. But anyway, <laughs> um, Mickey is among those who are would really like to see the economy open up soon. And, but these these people are not callous or or uncaring about this. They just, you know, they see the economic effects on people, people losing their life savings, losing their jobs, losing their businesses, and they want people to get back to work again. And oh, by the way, there are health consequences to people who are out of work. You do see the suicide rates go up. You do see alcoholism go up, things like that. So you look at at this question, it's like, okay, then so the the, the current argument is like, okay, uh, herd immunity, that's what's going to get us there. Well, the problem with herd immunity, which, which yes, that is a one way to, uh, help ensure that we don't get, uh, we don't get this. and, and you know, that, that, you, you know, Herd immunity is one way to make sure a virus stops passing through a society. On the low end, you might be able to do it with 40% of the, of the country getting infected and developing the antibodies. If it's like measles, you need something like 95%. Um, so we don't know exactly what that percentage is going to be. Obviously, the lower it is, the closer you get to it. If it's a high one, then you've got a real problem. And the second thing is, okay, once you get it, how long do you keep the immunity? Um, and I came across a really interesting, and I'd say, you know, somewhat ominous one that said you get it for about 44 weeks. Well, that's good. But it also doesn't mean you get it forever, which means if you, you know, let's say you've had it, and you've gotten over it in March. Well, okay, it means next spring, you're, you know, late next winter, early next spring, you're going to start worrying about it again. You know, the idea, of, we'd all like to believe this is something where you get it, your body has the antibodies, and it can fight it off forever. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not, and in a likelihood, eventually, you lose that immunity. Now, if we get a vaccine by then, okay, then we're, we're in good shape. If we don't have a vaccine by then, then we're in trouble. And then the third thing is that while you're building, while you're getting more people exposed to this virus in order to build up to herd immunity, the question then becomes, how many people get the virus, get it very badly, and end up dying? And we're seeing the numbers thrown around about what the fatality rate is. It's probably very likely that we're under, you know, it's, in fact, it's indisputable. We're undercounting cases. The bad news is we're probably undercounting deaths too, because we're periodically still finding people dead at home uh, who'd succumbed to the coronavirus and who, you know, uh, uh, you know, didn't get into those initial numbers. That's what happened in New York City recently. We are now in a situation where, so we're kind of guessing, but if it's 1%, you can do the math on that. You know, we have about a hundred, let's say half of America gets it. Okay. 160 uh, million Americans, you know, that'd be 1.6 million who would die if the death rate is 1%. Uh, you know, getting to herd immunity is going to have a, a cost, you know, a pretty severe, serious cost. Now you're going to have different death rates among the different places, but uh, anybody who's telling you this is an easy, easy choice or easy option here is, is not being honest to you. And I, I think, you know, as I, I try not to get sucked into social media debates, Greg, but like, if you can't handle bad news, just don't get into these debates. Don't get into these discussions because there is no magic wand solution that everyone is overlooking that, you know, uh, I wouldn't even say Irving Schmidlap because of his fine, fine work in the Democratic primary. If, uh, you know, John Smith, 342108 on Twitter with, you know, with an egg as his bio uh, you know, I, I'm sure, yeah, sure. I'm sure, pal. I'm sure you've got the simple answer that every other person on earth is overlooking.
1: Uh, first of all, thank you for confusing me with Rich Lowry. There are a few ah. people I would be more honored to be confused with. Uh, secondly, Jim, uh, as much as uh, you, you had nice to say about Dr. Fauci yesterday, I'm guessing you're not the biggest fan of him uh, suggesting that at some point people might need to uh, get tested. And if you have the proper antibodies, you can walk around with your immunity papers and have permission to go about your business. Yeah,
0: like, does he, does he, <laughs> I, I, Again, he's not a politician. His only job is to be a doctor. He's (laughs) just looking at it through the health lens. It's great. I just, just, you know, (laughs) Fauci is an Italian name. Um, But, you know, the last thing we need is anybody with a German accent in the United States. It's like, papers, please.
1: (laughs) All right. Let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And I was just thinking the other day, you know, we were talking about the Karens and people getting into other people's business. You know who would thrive in this environment? Elizabeth Warren. She's the... uh, favorite HOA scold of our Democratic presidential primary campaign coverage. And uh, mercifully, she never really got off the ground, never uh, got as high as second place in any contest, I don't think. Uh, And now she is the very last person running for president uh, on the Democratic side to officially endorse Joe Biden for president. We joked yesterday at the outset of Barack Obama uh, getting to the point of a virtually irrelevant endorsement of Biden now that everybody else is out of the race. And even Bernie Sanders had previously endorsed Joe Biden. But Elizabeth Warren, with a tweet, no less, uh, comes out and says, In this moment of crisis, it's more important than ever that the next president restores Americans' faith in good, effective government. And I've seen Joe Biden help our nation rebuild. Today, I'm proud to endorse Joe Biden as president of the United States. So Jim, that's my horrible Elizabeth Warren uh, impression. But uh, once again, she's late to the party. And uh, if she was hoping to be the number two spot on the ticket, she might be a little too late for that too.
0: Greg, this is my attempt at her. I have a plan. (laughs) That plan is to not win any contest. That plan is to tailor every detail of my campaign to appeal to the New York Times editorial board and the people who cover me. That clearly has to be a majority, right? Um, no, it only seems that way. So the plan <laughs> was to not, you know, it was the, obviously, you know, she just had decent second place finishes, but uh, not enough to, to keep her in the game, so to speak. She uh, then hems and haws. A lot of people say, figure that she and Bernie could have been this progressive one-two punch. She picked a fight with Bernie, so to speak, by claiming he had said a woman couldn't beat uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Which a lot of people said didn't really sound like him. It's possible he said something more in the vein of, you know, a woman would have particular challenges of beating Trump. And that might be, you know, like that's not inherently sexist or hateful of women or anything like that. If you were going to endorse the time you're going to, you know, like there's a time where if you can't be the king, you have to make the choice to be the kingmaker. And the endorsement would have carried some weight. She chose not to do that. And so now, you know, I, I, we, we had a lot of fun yesterday, kind of laughing at Barack Obama endorsing Biden long after it mattered, long after the, it's not, there's, there's nobody left who's you know, sitting on the, the sidelines saying, oh, should I support you know, Biden or not? Certainly not anybody who would be influenced by Barack Obama. And I think it goes doubly true for Warren, who, you know, I, I think a lot of these, I, I kind of wonder for her, probably for Sanders. Probably for a lot of these candidates who were not, you know, like Buttigieg has a future ahead of him. Klobuchar probably could run four years from now, eight years from now, if she wants to. For Warren and Sanders, this is the last time on the merry-go-round. This is, you know, after that, they're 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 aging out of the uh, possibility, and they're probably never going to get a better opportunity than they got this cycle. So this is this is their last dance. This is the end of their time. Yeah, they're still going to be in the Senate, but. Uh, Obviously, you know, when it comes to really shaping policy in this country, being a senator, or even a very powerful senator, isn't quite the same as being the president of the United States. And I can understand this is a difficult emotional journey for these can- for these candidates. And I don't know about you, Greg, I enjoy every painful moment of that journey for them. Um, <laughs> but all in all, like, you know, this... <laughs> it really comes across as ridiculous to endorse someone only like, in fact, in a way this, this, whether or not is intended to be a begrudging endorsement, the fact that it takes this long is effectively a begrudging endorsement.
1: You know, we heard the other day when, uh, Biden was talking with Bernie that he was uh, planning to, if elected, uh, create a new cabinet level position just to deal with pandemics. I can just imagine Elizabeth Warren pressing him to make her Secretary of Plans because she has a plan for everything. (laughs) Some other way to horn herself in there because uh, she's not going to be the running mate, I don't think. Uh, He wants to
0: be Secretary of the Department of Departments.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I think Whitmer's kind of played herself out. Klobuchar, I guess, is still in the conversation. Harris, probably. Uh, But Warren getting in so lately might. Eliminate herself there, so uh, I don't know if if yeah. if, if he still is I, insistent on going with the female. I think it might be down to those two.
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you you know, besides all the weaknesses, you don't need Wisconsin, you don't need Massachusetts. Wasn't that great on the stump, or didn't live up to the hype? You could say uh, she's seventy, right? So it's not like there's a huge age uh, uh, difference there. Made some pretty critical attacks during this uh, past primary. Like I don't, I don't really see what Elizabeth Warren gets you that some other candidate wouldn't get you, other than you know elizabeth warren and you know like like it's not like the new york times editorial board is going to say well we're not we're, well we're not endorsing biden we don't like the v-pick they endorsed her
1: yeah they co-endorsed her but uh it wasn't elizabeth warren who actually accosted you and your wife that, that you mentioned yesterday was it i can no she but i do that donut she voted for her on that note jim i will see you tomorrow See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Karumbis, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Find us on those home devices by saying play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And most of all, join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.